He basically conquered it and then withdrew his own troops uh, so that the Ukrainians would overtake it so that it would look like the Russians, the Russian military was incompetent and he's the only one that can have a victory. So you see lots of infighting oh with goodness. within the Russian side as well, which is a good thing for the Ukrainians, but also, sure. you know, <laughs> yeah. crazy to watch. Welcome back to Knowledge Brews Supreme, the show that percolates your creativity. And it is I, your host, Dr. John Chansey, and I am back and better than ever. But before we begin today's episode, here is a quick ad from show sponsor Sleeve Sold Separately. Greetings. This is Dr. John Chansey, host of Knowledge Brew Supreme, and I'm here to tell you about one of my favorite products in the fitness game, our new show sponsor, Sleeves Sold Separately. Sleeves Sold Separately is a brand of athleisure clothing for men who train hard and also want to look good while doing so. The clothes that these wonderful folks make are an absolute game changer. Their products are designed and manufactured in the United States, out in Los Angeles, and they are shipped directly to your home. Sleeve Sold Separately offers a wide variety of athleisure clothing, such as the Wife Lover tank top, their classic sleeveless hoodie, their Lungeman shorts that come in both four and six inch seams, and so much more. My personal favorite from Sleeve Sold Separately is their take on the classic jogger bottoms, except theirs is called the Sprinter. Sprinters come in several colors, and even before they were a show sponsor of Knowledge Brew Supreme, I bought multiple pairs in black. I've got a gray pair, a teal pair of the Sprinters, and I wear these daily. Uh, so please check them out. Visit their website at sleevesoldseparately.com. My listeners of Knowledge Brew Supreme can get 15% off your order from Sleeve Sold Separately using the promo code KNOWLEDGE15. That's all one word, KNOWLEDGE15. So please check out Sleeve Sold Separately, use the promo code, and thank me later. Take care. Bye. My guest for today's episode is the one and only Dr. John Emery from the University of Oklahoma, my alma mater, Boomer freaking Sooner. Uh, this is his second appearance on Knowledge Brew Supreme, so just a quick refresh on, on, on Dr. Emery here. He is an assistant professor of international security in the Department of International Area Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, his research focuses on issues of technology and international relations, ethics of war, security studies, nuclear war gaming, human-machine interaction, and political theory. Uh, he is a member of the 2021-2024 Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, Project on Nuclear Issues, uh, mid career cadre, excuse me, uh, which brings together nuclear experts from technical policy, academic, and military backgrounds. Uh, so of course, like, uh, he was a perfect guest to bring on originally. I think I brought him on, I think it was over a year ago now. I mean, the days are getting ahead of me at this point. Also, the subject matter, the timeline is, you know, it, it, it's, 
it's it's going on for a while now. So I brought Dr. Emery on. I brought John on today to talk about Ukraine again. We brought him on a while back to talk about the war uh, with Russia kind of in the early stages. So I thought, hey, it's been over a year. It'd be a really good time to kind of get together again and check in and see what's going on, kind of get a pulse with this with this ongoing war. It's not over, unfortunately. So uh, with that said, welcome back to Knowledge Brew Supreme. Dr. Emery, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me again. You know, it's it feels like it's been forever, especially, you know, this long, grueling war. We came on at the beginning and we were hoping to see some some better news. But, you know, it hasn't hasn't been too good on that front. But I actually just got back yesterday visiting um, Omaha, Nebraska. I was on off at Air Force Base uh, for a conference through the think tank that I'm a part of CSIS. Um, and we got to visit the strategic command. So we were able to talk with a lot of uh, nuclear leaders, military officials, and others. So got to do some wargaming with Stratcom on a Russia-Ukraine crisis, which was very cool, and work with a lot of next-generation scholars, researchers, and practitioners focusing on nuclear issues. So it was a really, really insightful experience and the perfect timing to be having a talk with you about these important issues. Awesome. Yeah, perfect time to to link up. I'm so glad we, we could make this happen. So I guess to start with, you know, I have a kind of a few questions related that are all sort of tied together. I kind of want to know, you know, from your perspective, where do things currently stand as far as Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Like from what I understand, Ukraine is finally beginning their spring offensive. But I mean, I guess it's technically summer now, so I'm not sure if they're still calling that. At this point, can we say, do we have any um, idea of who's winning? So just overall, kind of what's happening here? How would you kind of clarify on what's happening uh, with this war? Well, right now, we're actually 477 days into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Wow. Right. Yeah. So I I remember you initially emailed me wanting to have me on for the one year anniversary. Um, But unfortunately, you know, there wasn't a lot going on at that time. And I guess even worse now, we have a lot to discuss. So I think it's it's tough to say winning, losing, victory, defeat. It's all difficult to stay, say at this stage. You know, um, I'm sure you've seen on the news the kind of horrific photos and images in the recent re- weeks with Ukraine just utterly destroyed. And this was especially exacerbated by the explosion of the Karovka Reservoir leading to the horrific flooding and just absolute devastation. Um, throughout Ukraine. So so it's just really tough to see this kind of catastrophic, far-reaching implications for things like drinking water, electricity, agriculture, and even the economic future of Ukraine. So while Ukraine is in its now summer offensive, you know, making lots of gains into Russian-occupied territory within Ukraine, um, it's really coming at an immense cost. So and that co- when you say cost, you're talking about obviously the damage that's been done with this most recent explosion, but in terms of their ability to fight the war or, or economic or manpower or all of the above kind of, is that what, is that what you're all of the above? So yeah. Russia, so both sides have incurred heavy, heavy losses, right? Right. The Russians far more than the Ukrainians. Um, the Ukrainians have shown to be extremely resilient, but it's also just tough to keep fighting for so long. Even if you have everything to fight for, um, they were really the Russian or the Ukrainians were very good at repelling the the Russian winter offensive, right? It wasn't much of an offensive at all. Um, so that's that's good news. 
and we kept waiting and waiting for the spring offensive and now we're finally kind of seeing seeing the ukrainians win back some some territory um this is also we've seen some escalations kind of beyond the borders we've seen some drone attacks against uh against uh the kremlin in moscow so that was very interesting of course uh ukraine hasn't taken um, acknowledge that they were the ones behind that, etc. This kind of fog of war type thing. You've seen increased missile and drone attacks against Kiev and other civilian infrastructure uh, within Ukraine, and even some some small incursions across the Russian border into Belgorod. So it's been a pretty. There's been a lot going on even within the past few weeks. But I think what we hear in the news a lot of times is the town of Bakhmut, right? So I recommend all the listeners just to kind of go on and see see the kind of map of Ukraine so you can see the kind of gains that have been been made in the past uh, few weeks with this offensive. And the interesting thing about Bakhmut is it's not that strategically important, but it's become politically important for both sides, right? Yes, yes. So if you look at images of it, it's completely destroyed, but now it's being likened to, you know, something like Stalingrad in World War II. Exactly, exactly. Which is really bizarre in the sense, because one of the things I'm not sure, maybe because you, you've maybe heard this story before, but I, I was listening to, I want to say it was either Pod Save America or Pod Save the World, one of those one of those podcasts. And one of the podcasters was talking about a story that Hillary Clinton uh, relayed when she met Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin basically talked about how his dad's experience of going through uh, Stalingrad and Vladimir Putin was born shortly thereafter. I think his father survived and so did his mother um, just barely, apparently. But it was interesting to hear, I guess, to hear his family would tell him all the horrors of the things that happened at Stalingrad. And now just this weird twist of fate, you have Vladimir Putin almost creating his own Stalingrad in a sense if the you know if we're making that sort of comparison it's just the it's just sort of seeped in irony and tragedy all together and it's just right so it, it is and it really I think it shows the political nature of war in so many ways right it's not just the tactics it's not just the strategy it's the politics because again Bakhmut is not strategically advantageous to either side but it's been constructed as kind of like this essential standing ground for the kind of moral victory Right. There were a lot of really fascinating dynamics going on, especially within the Russian army and especially the Wagner group. Right. So the Wagner group is basically the the fighting force of of the Russian army, the private military contractors led by this guy, Prigozhin. So it's interesting because his forces took Bakhmut, um, but Ukraine didn't really have a counterattack to it. And then Prigozhin started speaking out saying that he's been denied ammo and all the weapons he needs to declare a victory. So he was specifically calling out Shoigu, the Russian defense minister, and General Gerasimov, the head of the army general staff, right? So you see this, this military contractor with a lot of power of the Wagner group calling out the highest echelons of the Russian military. And you can see the infighting going on there. And it was just really, really fascinating. So Eventually, you know, he didn't want something to happen where, in a sense, he wins Bakhmut, then the Russian military comes in and claims victory yeah. for all of his hard fighting. He also wanted to, you know, claim his own victory. So because Bakhmut is really tough to hold, he basically conquered it and then withdrew his own troops 
uh, so that the Ukrainians would overtake it so that it would look like the Russians, the Russian military was incompetent and he's the only one that can have a victory. So you see lots of infighting oh with goodness. within the Russian side as well, which is a good thing for the Ukrainians, but also, sure. you know, <laughs> yeah. crazy to watch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it would probably make for some great, you know, kind of TV drama, but on the war side of things, probably not the best strategy to to go with so it's so interesting fighting's not good <laughs> yeah yeah so kind of interesting you brought up the you know the political aspect i guess one of the other things i wanted to talk about with this war is that it's not just being fought on battlefields like bakhmut and other places around the ukraine or drone strikes on on moscow even um the the battles are being fought economically they're bought, being fought politically and so you know we started off i think the response at least globally to russia was we are going to hit you with economic sanctions. We're going to basically try as best we can to cut you off economically as best they could. Obviously, there were some issues with how much can we cut them off because they supply natural gas to Europe and things like that. So what I'm curious is like, are those sanctions working? I mean, we're talking about 477 days. I think that's the number you said earlier, and it's still going on. So are those sanctions even, are they having an effect? Like, is it is this something that's going to take longer for, you know, maybe the Russians to really feel or what's going on there? Yeah, so economic sanctions, especially early on in the war, were extremely devastating, right? Especially for the Russian society. I think you'll recall, you know, those early days where all the all the Western companies were pulling out of the malls and you saw like the fake McDonald's is popping up and things like that. Um but, you know, the Russian economy has proved far more resilient than we had anticipated, um, even though this is some of the most you know sweeping sanctions of all time. Um, Russia, according to the IMF, is set to grow at 0.7 percent economically this coming year. Oh, wow. Right? So, yeah, so quite surprising. Um, there's been a huge I think there are huge long term consequences to the Russian people, Russian economy, as you know, like flights are banned, things like that. And their inability to get a lot of parts for their planes poses a real long-term problem because you can't get the parts you need for planes. They're going to be more and more dangerous for your commercial flights. Uh, they've also been able to use a lot of third countries like Armenia, Georgia, and others to get the sanctioned goods, even from European businesses. So all these European companies and others that are not allowing exports to Russia are still getting them through, you know, record numbers of luxury goods sales to the country of Georgia and Armenia, which are then getting funneled into Russia. So you also have the problem where India and China are continuing to buy oil from Russia. And so it's, it's a very difficult balance to strike that it's bad, but not quite bad enough. Yeah, that's that's what you're you're kind of already maybe read my mind a little bit. That was one of my questions later was what does Russia, you know, countries like or excuse me, countries like China and India have to do with this? It sounds like maybe if they're not helping or floating Russia militarily, they can do a lot on the economic side of things. Continue to buy that oil, especially that's seems like that's the kind of the golden goose for for Russia at least uh, currently. Yeah, it's I mean it's a huge export of theirs, so it it makes right. sense, and everyone needs oil. Yeah, yeah. Um, interrelated, you know, I think I, I can't recall how I think this was a few months ago. So this is a little bit older news. But Vladimir Putin himself was also, I think, designated as a war criminal. I, I don't know if that was from the United Nations or somebody, probably not the United Nations, because I think Russia would probably have some sort of say in that. But some sort of designation has been placed upon him, you know, saying this, hey, this guy's a war criminal. Maybe, you know, maybe that doesn't I'm not sure what comes of that. But 
Is that going to have any kind of impact on this war? Does Vladimir Putin even care? Like, or maybe does he view that as some kind of like, I don't know, uh, compliment even? I don't know. Yeah, so he's he's been referred to the International Criminal Court, which neither the United States or Russia are a party to. So I'm sure he pretty much scoffs at it. I think as someone who studies ethics of war and laws of war, there is zero doubt that he is guilty of war crimes. Sure. Right. Intentionally targeting civilian infrastructure, um, executions, rape, torture, you name it. There's there's lots of horrific war crimes that have taken place. I mean, just look at any of the photos of destroyed civilian infrastructure, striking hospitals, et cetera. These are all intended on behalf of the Russians. And unfortunately, that will have zero impact on this war. It's something that you can perhaps hope for some semblance of justice in the long term when the war is over. But at this point in time, you know, there's they're gathering evidence and others, the Germans especially, are looking at signals intelligence of different of various like uh, Russian Russian cell phone data of who was in these places where war crimes were committed. They're getting names down so that maybe eventually there can be a trial of these individuals. But that's you know, long, long ways away. Sure, sure. That's what I, I expected, but yeah, uh, just one can hope, I suppose. Yeah. Um. So now I want to kind of switch gears and look at sort of the U.S.'s involvement in this war. Um. How would you describe the U.S.'s involvement a, a, in this war as it's as it's escalated? I it's changed since we've last spoke, has it not? Yeah, so we've we've been very centrally involved along with us and especially the UK and other NATO allies in providing tons and tons of weapons and assistance uh, to the Ukrainian people. So you can pull up the State Department website on this and it will tell you pretty much everything that the US has been supplying. Um, so prior to uh, 2021, um, the U.S. supplied about $3 billion to Ukraine since 2014 with the initial annexation of Crimea um, uh, to the Ukrainians. Uh, since uh, January 2021, uh, the U.S. has invested $42 billion wow. in Ukrainian military assistance, right? So massive, massive amounts of money. And they basically go through the list of United States security assistance from 10,000 javelin uh, anti-tank munitions, um, lots of uh, MRAPs and different tanks, things like that, 31 Abrams tanks, 45 T-72B tanks, just tons and tons of ammunition, lots of different types of drones, surveillance radar. We also especially help behind the scenes with intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, right? So that's kind of a huge, uh, huge advantage that we can help the Ukrainian forces with. Um, but also one thing that has um, kind of a more Oklahoma connection as well, too, is that we have, uh, you know, just recently been supplying the Ukrainians with the Patriot air defense system. Right. Oh. And so and so there were about just over 50 Ukrainian soldiers at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, being trained on how to use this air defense system. And so. Yeah. yeah, so we've seen, especially with that and the HIMARS and a couple other air defense systems, you know, with lots and lots of rocket attacks on Kiev and others uh, from the Russians, uh, we've had a lot better success rate at intercepting some of those missile attacks. And so this is a huge system to especially protect the civilian cities um, in Western Ukraine. 
Yeah, yeah, especially like you mentioned earlier. I mean, it seems like there's more attacks specifically on Kiev at this point, kind of as this war continues to escalate. Um, yeah, it's so now I want to think about. So um, this isn't necessarily asking you to prognosticate or, or, you know, who you think might win or not, but what sort of implications do you think could come about for this war based on the, the, the coming presidential election of 2024? Like, I'm presuming if, if Joe Biden were to win, probably a lot would stay the same. But do you think that could change if perhaps somebody on the Republican side wins? I mean, is or are there are there candidates on that side who are still fairly favorable to supporting Ukraine maybe versus others who are not. I'm, I'm just curious where that might come yeah. into play. I, I truly see the U S election as being somewhat indifferent to what happens in Ukraine, mm. right? We've seen wide bipartisan support for this war, um, massive, massive amounts of, uh, of money support, um, visits from both Democrats and Republicans uh, to Vladimir Zelensky and others in Ukraine. So I think it shouldn't matter too much. I think what's happening in the war will have a greater effect at that time rather than who is president. Now, I do think that it is possible if someone like Donald Trump were to be reelected, you know, somehow that that could change things because he's a bit more of a wild card when it comes to things like that. Uh, but what that would look like, we don't know. Sure. But I don't see the presidential election as having any more impact than what's actually happening on the ground. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I've got one more kind of question before we go to a break. And this is kind of getting away from the U.S. side of things. But I'm just curious, should other European countries, um, specifically I'm thinking about other former Soviet bloc countries, um, should they be concerned? about potential Russian invasion or or has the war gone so long maybe perhaps Russians might they might not even want to consider you know invading another country because this one has turned out kind of to be a disaster for them is what it seems like right it's so hard to really understand and I think we talked about this in our first podcast together how badly Putin miscalculated yes right yes. what he was doing before was somewhat working like when he annexed Crimea in the sense that he annexed Crimea, occupied the territory, uh, had what they, they called little green men uh, going across so Russian soldiers into eastern Ukraine with no insignias, and he just had plausible deniability. Everyone knew they were Russian soldiers, but he could say, these aren't my soldiers. He did something similar in the post-Soviet uh, state of Georgia. Um you know, he bombed uh, He bombed in 2008, the Russians invaded Georgia, and still to this day, they occupy about a third of Georgian territory. But what they've been successful at is undermining the political structure from within, right? So the Georgian uh, ruling party, even though they are a democracy, it's very, very favorable to Russia, and it's all controlled through uh, one oligarch there named Ivanishvili, who... Uh, very much uh, toes uh, Putin's line in uh, in Georgia. So you see that kind of undermining from within. And, you know, at this point, too, uh, with all the Russians fleeing uh, from Russia, trying to avoid sanctions and some of the men trying to avoid being drafted into the military, they flooded places like Georgia, Turkey, even Bali um, and United Arab Emirates. Right. So what you can see do a lot of reading um especially new york times has a few good uh stories on both the russian 
people fleeing to Bali and Georgia that Georgia is basically now turning into Russia, unfortunately. So many Russians are there. They are they are buying up property, starting businesses, and the very friendly Georgian government is allowing Russians to start businesses tax-free, so disadvantaging their own Georgian population. So it just shows that he doesn't necessarily need to conquer these kind of post-Soviet countries anymore, whereas the other post-Soviet countries are protected by the NATO alliance. So I think given how bad things have gone, he'd be far more hesitant to invade any of those. So, okay, that's a question I wanted to bring up too. I'm so glad you brought up NATO. One one more question before we go to a break. So I know that there, I think I, I, I maybe have just been hearing, I don't know, maybe this is the recent talks with Zelensky and other leaders, but sort of more vocal push for putting Ukraine getting them into NATO faster. Now, in theory, that sounds great because Ukraine would be part of NATO. But also in theory, if one member of NATO is attacked right now, if that member would be Ukraine, wouldn't that not in theory mean the United States and other countries would have to go directly to war with Russia? Like, or are we just going to wait for Ukraine this to, to hash out and then get them into NATO? Like, what's going on there? Yeah, so as you mentioned, Article 5 of the NATO... Um, the NATO treaty says that an attack against one is an attack against all, yes. right? And so the assumption is, is that when Article 5 is triggered, everyone in the NATO alliance goes to war, right? And so we've seen, you know, something that we thought we would never see, which is uh, Finland and Sweden uh, in the process of joining NATO. I believe Finland has already joined and Sweden remains in the process, which have remained neutral since World War II right. uh, because of this Russian invasion. Um, my understanding is that, of course, we want Ukraine to be more integrated into, into Europe and into the NATO alliance. But even if they were integrated, I believe there is a clause, but don't quote me on this because I haven't read the treaty for quite some time. Um, that you cannot join if you are involved in active hostilities. Ah, okay. And so I don't think that that would be an issue. But I do see, you know, uh, Biden just recently allowed uh, the sale of F-16s to Ukraine. Right. Right. Especially from some of the Eastern European countries. So getting those fighter jets, those won't actually have much of an impact on the war either this year or probably even next. Right. They're very expensive to maintain. It's very difficult to train on them. But I do think it's part of a longer term project of transitioning the Ukrainians off of Soviet systems onto more Western systems. So this, for me, is a positive sign toward eventual NATO integration rather than a game changing uh, weapon of war in the short term. Interesting. OK, OK, that makes that makes a lot more sense. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned NATO because I knew I forgot to write that down as a question. But as we got through the interview, we got through some of these questions I'm like, don't forget to bring up NATO because that's that's an important NATO's always present. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. So I think this would be a good time to take a break uh, here from our other show sponsor. But I have some more questions for, for Dr. John Emery here about the war in Ukraine and also some other geopolitical uh, concerns I have I want to bring up. So hang tight. We'll be back in just a moment. All right. So my wonderful sponsors at Barnana Chips were so kind uh, to send me a care package with some wonderful snacks and wonderful chips of various kinds, different snacks to try. And I've been saving one for a while that I've been, been dying to try. And it's the organic plantain chips spicy mango salsa, their kettle cook style chips. So I'm gonna do a live 
uh, first try a live taste uh, and you can get my instant reactions to these chips. I've been dying to try these chips. So here we go, open up the bag, give a smell test. Ooh, ooh, I can smell the, the sweetness, the, the, the spiciness. Okay, here we go, first chip. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I like that a lot. Is the flavor is a little subtle, the spice is kind of subtle, but you can taste the sweetness of the mango right away. But that spicy mango kind of, the salsa, um, kind of creeping up in the back. I can feel the spice in the back of my, the back of my mouth right now. It's really good. Um, it's not overpowering the mango, the sweetness, but the salsa taste together, not overpowering, but a nice kick, you know, um, be good to have a glass of water with these, but I'm not feeling like, oh my God, I absolutely have to rush out and drink a glass of water right now. I like that, that subtle spice, uh, and it combined with the sweetness. So let me give another chip good stuff good stuff so check these out they're banana spicy mango salsa they're kettle style chip it's fantastic i would give it like an 11 out of 10 i don't know is that fair but check it out thanks banana All right, so we are back. Uh, Knowledge Brew Supreme. I am here with Dr. John Emery. We are talking all things about the Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's over a year now. Um, so I have some other questions I want to jump into. So, you know, we talked uh, a little over a year ago. And, you know, I'm definitely happy to have you on the podcast, but I'm not going to lie. I, I was hoping maybe if I was going to bring you back on, maybe the war would be over. You know, we could talk about something a little more happy, but uh, such as things as they are. So, you know, one year from now, like, do you think this do you think this will still be going on a year from now? I know I meant it, before our last break, you mentioned like the thing with the F-16 fighter jets. That's kind of more long term planning. Do you foresee this war going on? an additional year or even years from now. Yeah, it's so hard. I really, I don't like to make predictions because the social world is too complex, sure. right? And most of us were, you know, thinking, you know, why would Russia invade Ukraine? It doesn't make sense. We also thought the Ukrainians might fall very quickly. And we realized the kind of ongoing uh, joke was that we used to think that Russia was the second best military in the world. And we quickly realized that they were the second best military in Ukraine, right? <laughs> so, so you see how how quickly our assumptions about the the Russian military kind of dissolved. But I also don't see a feasible end in sight, right? I don't see Ukraine ever stop fighting for its homeland because right. we wouldn't, no one else would. Um, but also, there's the fact that. Ukraine remains heavily dependent on NATO supplied weapons, right? And so I do think that, you know, this kind of counteroffensive that's going on right now um, by the Ukrainians is is very political in a lot of ways because they kind of want to say to the West, of course, they want to gain back their territory, but they want to say, you've given us all these dollars, um, all this money, all these supplies. We want to show you that we can use it to push back the Russians, Right. And so because if that eventually if that support eventually dried up, if conditions changed, uh, that could mean something very different for the Ukrainians. And sure. and moreover, 
you know, always in the back of our mind are the nuclear threats, yes. right? The nuclear threats from Russia remain constant, even though Putin has ratcheted back his um, some of his statements on it. It's still there in the background. And that's the thing that could fundamentally change this war. Sure, sure. So, yeah, I think that was one of the things we even talked about the last time you were here was sort of the nuclear implications of this war. And I want to say that at that time, Putin was being a little more bellicose about those specifically. It was especially scary. Yeah. Yes, yes. And at least now the talk is dialed down, but it sort of seems like that's always the elephant in the room uh, anytime you're dealing with, uh, with Russia. So kind of thinking about the what this war might look like if it were to come to an end we don't we have no idea when it could come to an end i kind of have two questions that are related and i'll start off with the first what does victory look like for russia is it total conquest of ukraine or is it more kind of like what you were saying with georgia where yes we have a lot of people here but mostly we have the kind of influence in terms of like maybe a puppet government or they are they literally just coming to like we're taking it over this is like this is done well, initially, that's exactly what they wanted to do, sure. right? And they thought it was going to be, Putin was told it would be a quick victory. It would be over in a couple of weeks. We They would welcome us in the streets of Kiev with open arms and flowers as our tanks roll in, right? Many, many governments have heard that before and often <laughs> been proven wrong. I think what victory looks like for Russia, honestly, only Putin knows. I don't think anymore he's aiming for a complete annexation of Ukraine. Um, the kind of horrible way that the war has been going for the Russians. Maybe it means maintaining Crimea and some of uh, the Donbass and eastern Ukraine. I'm not exactly sure. But what we do know from kind of Putin's history and in war is he's willing to engage endlessly in war in order to achieve nothing. Even if he destroys everything in the process, throws every Russian man in there to the slaughter, he does not care. Right. And so that's the kind of scary thing about it is that even if he's losing battles, so let's say, you know, even for example, Ukraine does the unthinkable and wins back all of its territory, that won't necessarily stop Putin. Sure. Right. And that's the scary thing. So there there's there's the reverse side of it then so what does victory look like for ukraine does it, it it's not just being able to get territory back is it that stability knowing that you're not going to get shelled and bombed and droned by russia even though they may be gone they're still waging warfare is that yeah, there's they're still your neighbors right yeah. so at least what ukraine has stated and what Zelensky has stated is that they want to go back to pre-2014. They, of course, want all of their territorial integrity and their sovereignty restored, including Crimea. Yeah. Right. And, of course, that's going to be their negotiating position. You know, God forbid, a couple of years more into this conflict, that may change. But I think that's at least their negotiating position and what they're they're fighting for. Um, at least as far as this current counteroffensive, their summer slash spring offensive is going, uh, they haven't defined their objectives for what they want to achieve. And I think this is actually pretty smart because they just want to, one, get back territory and kind of push back the Russians as much as possible, who have exhausted a lot of their conventional weapons. Um, but also for the West, there's nothing to measure their success against, right? If you set objectives be they small objectives or bold objectives, and you don't reach them, right? Right? then that's worse. 
Whereas uh, Ukraine and Zelensky especially have been especially good on the kind of PR portion of the battle, right? Even if you're not making strategic victories, which you know they are at this point in time, but they can get a lot of moral wins. So they're smart at kind of crafting the war narrative, which is just as important. Sure, sure. And one of the things I thought, I, and I'm not sure if this has been brought up, at least sort of in the mainstream discussion too, but one of the signs that, and I don't know if this is being discussed openly in terms of like negotiations, peace treaties, things like that, but for the ability for Ukraine to have air travel again, they have not been able to this entire time. Like when Biden came in, he had to come by train. When Zelensky goes somewhere, he's got to go by train. Yeah. The fact that you have this, you know, capital like Kiev that has no ability to to send out flights and receive flights, you know, like that is just, I, I think that's just something that we think about the, the the toll of the cost of the war in terms of like, oh, bodies, bullets, things like that. But to imagine living in a, a major city and not have air travel, I don't know, that's just something that kind of blows my mind to think about when I say it out loud. So yeah, absolutely. And you know, the Ukrainians have been building up ever since um, the World Cup, I want to say like back in 2010, they host the World Cup. Yeah. You know, I had in 2012, I traveled to Ukraine, I, I visited Kiev, I even visited the Chernobyl nuclear exclusion zone um, as well. But and I traveled through there other times, too, because Ukrainian air, they'd built up the airport to really yeah. be like a hub for Central and Eastern Europe. And it was a really beautiful thing. So, you know, amongst all the horrors of war, you got to think, you know, the long term infrastructure, the long term environmental costs, especially of this flooding agriculturally as well. Right. This has huge implications for global food prices, especially in the global south. So, you know, we're just starting to see the horrors of this flood. And it's not just the immediate effects. It's, you know, the long term ones. And it's you know, Kiev is such a beautiful city, too. It's it's hard to see it in the news like that. Sure, sure. So I want to I want to switch gears um, and kind of talk a little bit about sort of the larger geopolitical issue, not outside of Russia and Ukraine. Um, I want to talk I want to switch gears and talk about China a few. I want to say it was a few months ago. It was about the time I was originally trying to get like around that one year mark of the, the war. I was reaching out to you and, and beginning the discussion of getting you back on here. There was some reports. I, I don't remember the the. I, I want to say it was a general in the U.S. military. I don't remember this person's name, but this person came out and said, "Hey, we will most likely be at war with China in 2025 or by 2025." Do you buy that? Should we be concerned? I mean, I know there's always this kind of escalating tension around China and Taiwan and and our role there, but um, is that something we should be openly worried about, like already in 2023? Uh, I'll say this: it doesn't keep me up at night. Right. <laughs> and it shouldn't keep you up at night either. So so China is very much, um, you know, a long term geopolitical rival of the United States. Sure. Right. Um, war is always unpredictable. People like to make predictions saying we're going to be at war within 2025, all these things. We are really bad at making predictions in the social world. Right. You don't actually know these things, but people make predictions all the time. And then when things happen. They can point to it and see, say, I was right, even though they make sure. wrong predictions all the time. So I think there's a lot of that going on. Uh, we do care about China. China has been uh, expanding its nuclear arsenal in recent years, which is quite troubling. Before, they held about um, roughly about 400 nuclear warheads. They, we call that a minimal deterrence posture, right? They basically said, we just need enough nuclear warheads to prevent anyone from fighting against us, right? Sure. Uh, whereas the U.S. and Russia have, you know, closer to 1,500 
Um, and so when it comes to Russia, you know, the thing we always hear about is a China, or sorry, back up. When it comes to China, the thing we always hear about is a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Well, of course, uh, we care about this. We don't have any formal treaties with Taiwan, but Nancy Pelosi recently visited Taiwan. Uh, they are home to a large, vast majority of percentage of the semiconductor production in the world. So computer chips for everything we use in our everyday lives are coming from Taiwan. And of course, China has a one China policy, which means Taiwan was never independent. Right. It was always part of China. So no one, I think not even Xi Jinping at this point, knows when it will occur. At least in Chinese doctrine, it is a matter of not if, but when, yes. right? This is part of China. We are going to get it back. When is the major question? But of course, you know, we forget that China and the United States have a huge economic interdependence right now with each other. So that's a huge deterrent because it'll have huge economic costs. Um, you know, a year ago when we when we spoke about this, I was, you know, much more optimistic that the kind of global economic sanctions against Russia would give China pause. But now with Russia economic sanctions not hurting them as much as we had hoped, yes. you know, China may be looking at that and recalculating as well. Yeah, where is that? Where is that deterrent? If they're seeing Russia is actually making money off of this, potentially, I mean, slight growth, not huge growth, but, you know, growth nonetheless, that that could be um, yeah, not be the deterrent we thought it would be. So I want to stick with I want to stick with uh, China. There's a I was got into reading um, some books by I hope I'm saying his name right. Ray Dalio, Dalio, or I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. About a year ago. Um in between our last podcast. And he wrote a book just all about kind of documenting just historically looking at the rise and falls of various empires. And he mapped it out where empires will go through like six stages of like growth, ascension, and eventual decline. Like he talks about the Roman empire, the British empire, and now we have the United States. Um, and he classified the United States, I want to say either in like stage five or stage six, which means like on the decline, basically, like we're on the other side of that slope. Um, and with China in his in his theoretical model, with a number of factors kind of being on the rise. Um, and I think his prediction is that eventually China would supplant us at least as being the major economic and military superpower. Do you buy that kind of idea about China? Like, do you think do you foresee a world maybe within the next 10 years? I know you said you don't like predictions, but does that seem feasible or is there enough? Is there still enough gap at least? I know you mentioned the nuclear arsenal. There's still quite a bit of gap, but where do we stand? Do you think kind of uh, as far as empires go? Right. So I love, so as much as I teach political science and security studies, I love history too. And I think history is very complicated and complex. And I think the comparisons are not always helpful in a lot of ways. You know, I think it's very easy to make these kind of broad assumptions and broad historical comparisons about the rise and fall of empires. And I think, you know, there is definitely some validity to it, but I think the world is much different now. You know, like I mentioned, there is this global interdependence, right? You cannot imagine, you know, even in the British Empire, the kind of interconnected globe that we have today, as we saw in like with uh, a lot of the lockdowns from COVID, right? Yes. It's there are shortages of certain types of canned food items because we cannot get the aluminum from a clock across the globe to here and all these kind of logistics things that I think make it quite different. Um, also, 
you know, as I mentioned, they're expanding their nuclear arsenal, et cetera. And they have the second most military spending in the world with $292 billion last year. As a comparison, the U.S. was $877 billion, right? So still, still, a, yeah. <laughs> still a very long ways off. Yeah. And that's, you know, not to mention all of our allies, right? And so this is the kind of difference. Is the U.S. in decline? If you look at it isolated, you could make that case perhaps. Sure. Right. China is definitely rising. But if you compare us with all of our NATO allies and Australia, Japan, South Korea, right, this alliance is much stronger and it has huge economic power, huge military power. You know, for example, Russia spent $86 billion in 2022 on its military. That's less than Germany, only one of our 30 allies. Wow. Right. So if you view the world in this um, as more alliances rather than individual countries, not to mention, you know, China has a huge demographic problem coming its way. Sure. Uh, they've been able to grow economically a lot, but that's starting to slow down a bit too. Um, lots of protests um, because of harsh, harsh lockdowns, you know, even though they have massive control over the population, you know, lots and lots of issues that I think long term. And I think that this Russian invasion of Ukraine has shown that, you know, NATO is much stronger than we thought it was. Yes. In a lot of ways that the world is far more united. It's not just China versus the US. And in addition to that, I think that I think that we see we can be far more optimistic that, you know, the idea that somehow the U.S. is going to fail or like even if we're doing not as well economically that people will go to the Chinese yuan instead of the U.S. dollar. Right. That's just never going to happen, at least in the foreseeable future. So and I did want to say when I was talking about nuclear weapons, I, I misspoke. The U.S. has around 5000 nuclear warheads, not 1500. <laughs> That's so, quite a bit of difference when it comes to nuclear weapons. It is down uh, from like the Cold War peak of thirty thousand, though. So it's a yeah. massively reduced arsenal, but but still enough to blow up the world a few times over. <laughs> Certainly. Well, that's a really good. Uh, I guess this is a good kind of segue. Or do you, I think you already mentioned this earlier, but do you think based on a year from you know we are a year into this, a year plus into the U the war in Ukraine, are we any closer? Or are we further away, perhaps, you know, thinking about that nuclear, that debt, the clock, the countdown, are we? How it, many minutes to midnight are we? <laughs> yeah. Has it moved forward or is it stalled or what's going on there? Do you, how do you feel about that? Yeah. So that's the, the doomsday clock, as it's called, is from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. And I actually have a number of t-shirts from them as well that have like different artistic renderings of the doomsday clock. So Highly recommend uh, both reading the bullets and the atomic scientists and getting some of their swag. Um, but I would say that although the nuclear threats have ratcheted down a bit, the nuclear threat is always there. Sure. And I would say I'm a little bit more concerned today than I was before, oh. actually. So I think at the beginning, we were very concerned. I even had students emailing me like, are we going to die in nuclear war? Kind of all these things because, you know, they haven't experienced these types of nuclear threats before. But I think what worries me a little bit more is Russian uh, nuclear doctrine, right? So the Russians view nuclear weapons as just bigger conventional bombs. Yes. We view them as a separate category, which is, a taboo weapon that you should not use except in extreme necessity, right? The Russians view it as just a bigger bomb, and they have stated in their declaratory policy that we reserve the right to use nuclear weapons 
if there are existential threats to the Russian, uh, I think government is how they phrase it. But of course, that means to Putin. Sure. When does Putin feel existentially threatened? <laughs> and also, Russia has very much depleted a lot of its conventional supply, right? So although they're ramping up production and things like that, they're losing out the conventional war. So at what stage of a conflict would Russia consider employing a tactical nuclear weapon? What would the response be? And so that's something I was actually able to war game at strategic command, of course, in an unclassified hypothetical war game is what do you do in order to respond to perhaps a Russian nuclear use in Ukraine? And let me tell you, the options are scary because the assumption of the U.S. is that we need to do everything we can to make sure deterrence holds, that a nuclear weapon is never used. Once deterrence fails, that completely yes. changes the game. It's Pandora's box. Yeah. Yeah. That's. And then how do you respond? Do you respond only conventionally? Right. Not, not with nuclear weapons, which, you know, my own opinion, I think we would respond conventionally. Perhaps NATO would enter into the conflict and actively aid the Ukrainians in pushing them out. But then how does Putin respond? What are the second, third, fourth order consequences? Right. I, I do believe that Putin is a rational actor who miscalculates, but he also has his finger on the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. I don't think he's suicidal. Right. But how far does he is he willing to push to perhaps call the West bluff? Wow. That is, that is, that scary is scary stuff. <laughs> yeah. That is very concerning. <laughs> Yikes. All right. Um, so I have, I have one last kind of serious foreign policy question for you related to kind of the U S now. Um, we also recently, so we, we were talking about Ukraine passing the one year anniversary. Well, we recently also passed the 20 year anniversary for the U.S.'s invasion of Iraq. And so this is a very big picture question. You can answer any way you want. Um, how do you think and, I, and I, maybe I'm stepping out on a limb here by saying it this way, but how do you think our failure in that country, meaning, you know, however you want to take it? I mean, I'm not sure if you would call it a failure or not, but just the way it went however you want to describe it. How do you think that currently influences our foreign policy now? Like, do you think because of that, are we less like, or we're more hesitant to get involved directly in things like that? Or, or I, I'm not sure any way you want to take that. Yeah. So, well, I teach an entire course, global security that focuses, you know, we basically focus all on the Iraq war. So I'll try and distill a semester's worth and do like a one minute clip. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Best I can. I think, you know, in the post in the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think the U.S. had this idea that um, and especially amongst the Bush administration officials that liberal democracy had won out, that if you just take out the dictators around the world, they will fall like dominoes and the world will embrace our superior way of life. So I think we had a lot of hubris about what American power could do when it came to regime change. Right. That we could essentially topple Saddam Hussein and then a an American style democracy would flourish there. As we saw, that wasn't necessarily the case. You know, millions of Iraqis died, thousands of U.S. and allied soldiers, because, again, our British, our German, our Polish, our Australian allies, Canadian allies were fighting with us alongside in Iraq as well. The, you know, the strength of the alliance. And so I think the lessons that we learned there were essentially that American power 
cannot change politics in a lot of ways. Sure. Right. And so I think that's a good lesson that we learned from there, that you cannot change the political structure of things. Of course, you know, Putin is a dictator who's waging aggressive war, but also overthrowing him creates a power vacuum, especially with a nuclear arsenal. Right. So I think we've learned lessons. And I think our mentality in the U.S. has very much shifted to great power competition. Right. Rising China, Russia, Russian invasion of Ukraine. So how do you fight a different type of war, not one against terrorist networks and insurgencies, which is very difficult to fight, but one versus other great powers. And so, which is why both the U.S. spending reached, a, military spending reached its highest point, but also global military spending this past year reached its highest point. So I think everyone's ratcheting up for what may or may not come in the future with this kind of great power competition. Interesting. Okay. All right. Sounds like, yeah, a lot, lot to keep our eyes on in the future. Hopefully, you know, we get a chance to bring you back on, talk about more things, global foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy, but maybe some better news on the on the war front, hopefully. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, so got a, a couple light lighter questions. First one, I'm curious, um, are you working on anything research-wise, anything you can plug or anything you want to talk about or share uh, with the listeners? Yeah, so I'm actually doing some more historical projects right now. Um, I'm working with with a great co-author. Her name is Anna Pluff, and she's a historian by training. And we dug through a bunch of the archives at the University of Chicago to look at the uh, Manhattan Project and the Trinity Test. So with the Oppenheimer movie coming out uh, July 27th, mark your calendars, everyone. Uh, Christopher Nolan is he's in for a treat. She and I are working on a few series of papers and op-eds that look at the kind of debates and discussion within the physicists and engineers of the Manhattan Project. So we got some really, really cool archival data, how they argued whether or not to drop the bombs on Japan, how that filtered up to Secretary of War Stimson and Truman, the kind of debates around that. Because I think, especially in talking with my students, there are a lot of interesting myths in the kind of U.S. understanding of the dropping of the bombs and history is far more complex. So we've got some of the original documents to tease out those complexities. So we'll try and pin that to the Oppenheimer movie as much as we can. So look out this summer. Nice. Where would folks, Where do you have a website or anything someone could find this? Or is this more like academic papers that you could maybe like Google or how would... How would so uh, my website is www.emeryjohnr.com. Nice. Uh, so uh, I'll post everything there. We are trying to get more popular facing articles as well. Um, so we're going to try and get an op-ed in, you know, kind of one of the main papers, um, probably something like the LA Times, just to appeal to appeal to the Hollywood crowd that's watching the Oppenheimer movie. And then we'll get some get some shorter kind of magazine length articles as well, hopefully in like the Atlantic or foreign policy, and then look at the academic papers in the future. So they should be accessible to your uh, listeners. Nice. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll definitely make sure I'll put a link in the show notes for your website. People can check that out and also keep up with your amazing work. I'm very excited. I'm excited about the movie, uh, Oppenheimer movie. Now we got some cool kind of historical articles to maybe go along with it. Uh, my uh, my spider senses are tingling right now, so I'm excited for that. Um, let me ask you one last, one last question, not very serious, but are you anything you're watching or reading or listening to these days that you're excited about? I mean, besides watching OU softball dominate again, yes, yes. there has a, a three-peat and just, you know, one of the greatest sports teams of all times. 
Yes. Like, hands down. Just the, the girls absolutely killed it. Um, besides that, um, I've been listening to a lot of um, a War on the Rocks podcast. Ooh. Um, so that's that's a pretty good uh, podcast, especially if you want kind of the tactical operations level of what's going on um, uh, with Russia, Ukraine. So they do quite a few bits on that. So that one's been been keeping me updated on everything that's going on. Nice. Okay, cool. I'll check that one out. I'm always looking for a good podcast, especially when it comes to topics like these. So appreciate the suggestion. Um, well, thank you uh, to Dr. John Emery. We're going to wrap things up. Thank you again so much for joining me again today. Uh, I'll put some links in the show notes. You can find his website. Uh, this makes episode 79 of Knowledge Brew Supreme. I am your host, Dr. John Chansey. My goal is to reach 100 episodes. So that means I'm only 21 away from that goal. Thank you for listening. Please share, subscribe, review. Be good, be safe, and peace out. Thank you.